Hello and welcome back to Slaying Giants with Joe Sneed. I am your host, Joe Sneed. Hope you had a great day yesterday. Uh, in our first episode of Slaying Giants, we covered what the biblical idea of justice is. And uh, I'll just recap real quick. Justice is getting what we deserve, and more specifically, justice is getting what we deserve for our actions. And God lays out the consequences for those actions. He lays out what is right and what is wrong through um, his moral law, and then also lays out consequences for that, how some crimes deserve worse punishment than others. We also talked about how there are eternal consequences for our actions, as as well as temporal, when we focused on the eternal last time. And I mentioned how both Christians and non-Christians alike are going to have to stand before uh, Jesus and give an account for our lives. Now, for the Christian, we don't have to worry about being condemned there because Jesus has already uh, applied his righteousness to our lives and taken our sin upon himself on the cross, and God righteously judged our sin there on the cross. That's how God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now, the rewards we get, we receive at the judgment seat of Christ are eternal rewards, but do not determine our salvation. The Christian is not condemned there because, and as I mentioned last time, we re- we've received grace and mercy. And as just to review those, the terms mercy, mercy just means not getting something bad that we do deserve. Well, grace is getting something good that we don't deserve. Again, mercy is getting something, is not getting something bad that we do deserve. Well, grace is getting something good that we don't deserve. But remember, we do deserve the justice, but Jesus took on that punishment for us. Now, just because we're saved, we don't, we don't keep sinning, do we? I mean, absolutely not. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says... How can we who have died to sin continue in sin? For we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life. We also know from Romans that God establishes civil government to enforce justice. Now, let me ask you, do we give preference to the rich and powerful when distributing justice? No, absolutely not. And I think almost everyone within the sound of my voice agrees with that. But let me further ask, do we give preference to the poor? No, absolutely not either. Leviticus 19.15 says, do not give favoritism to the rich and powerful or to the poor. So justice is, as the statue indicates with the blindfolded lady, justice is supposed to be blind. We apply God's law impartially to each person as an image bearer of God. Now, as I just mentioned, God instituted civil governments to enforce justice. Romans 13, 1 through 7 states that, Titus 3, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. There's a lot of passages on that. Now, civil authorities, the Bible describes them as ministers of God. So, this is a sacred task that they're entitled with, and God has given them the power of the sword, according to Romans 13. Now, that's a reference back to Genesis 9. We'll get into that. Now, civil authorities must fulfill their God-given duty to execute justice impartially. Now, this includes honoring the image of God and man by executing capital punishment when appropriate for capital crimes. Again, that's in Genesis 9, 6 is where that's first established. Now, just to add some context there, 
Noah and his family had just come out of the ark. Uh, and the, the whole reason they were in the ark was because God had to judge the world because anarchy and violence had spread all over the world and humanity was a, in danger of wiping themselves out. And so God saved Noah and his family. They were the last family that hadn't been corrupted by this violence. They were sinners, but they weren't corrupted by this violence. And God wipes out the rest of wicked humanity. And as soon as Noah and his family come off of the ark, God institutes this rule that says, if you slay man, then by the hand of man you must be executed. Now, this is instituted, honestly, not primarily as a deterrent, even though capital punishment is a deterrent. It's instituted to honor the image of God in humanity. So, capital punishment for capital crimes is actually an act of worship. It's recognizing the image of God in every single human. And if you kill someone, that means you have dishonored the image of God in effigy. And therefore, because God is worthy of of all honor, you deserve death. And Paul reaffirms that in Romans 13 when he says that God has given the government the power of the sword, which means he's given them the power to execute capital punishment. And Jesus himself stated this in Matthew 26, 52. Remember, um, he's in the garden with his disciples, and Judas had just come and betrayed him and kissed him, and the the guards were coming to, uh, to grab Jesus and take him away. And Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus rebukes him, not because Peter was wrong in defending Jesus, but, you know, Jesus had told them this had to take place, and the this plan had to go through. But then Jesus reminds Peter that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Which means if you try to institute your will through just brutal force and murder, then you deserve death. So Jesus reaffirms Genesis 9-6 and the, the biblical mandate and holiness of capital punishment. That's a teaching that a lot of people probably have not heard, but they need to. Now, what about where Jesus says to turn the other cheek? When Jesus gave that command, that's in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. That's, on the, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in there, Jesus is talking to individual believers, and sometimes we are called to overlook a offense personally. However, this is not the command for governments. Remember, Jesus reaffirmed the gover- in, in the same Gospel of Matthew there, government's job is to be an avenger of evildoers. So the government can never look overlook an offense. We personally can overlook slights against us, and we should oftentimes as a testament to what God has done for us. The government cannot do that. I hope that makes sense. You can, uh, If that doesn't, you can email me your questions at uh, slanggiantshow at protonmail.com. But we're going to move on now. Now, That's biblical justice. Now, where the confusion lies is with a very subtle, unbiblical idea called social justice. People today insert a little qualifier before justice, the word social. Now, this is what social justice means as defined by pretty much every advocate of it. 
What they mean by social justice is that the poor are entitled to my wealth. Now, you'll probably many of you will recognize that this is not an idea rooted in the Bible, but it's an idea rooted in Marxism. And if you remember, uh, Marx said in his Communist Manifesto, he, he talked about from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That was the idea. The poor are entitled to my wealth, and if I don't give them my wealth, if they have less than me and I don't give them my wealth to, to somehow raise them up to my level, then I'm, I'm uh, committing an injustice against them. Now, this is a very subtle deception, but this is very important. And it's very uh, seductive because as Christians, we know we're supposed to help the poor, and we want to help the poor. Jesus commanded us to help the poor, and we do this because Jesus has given us mercy and grace. Remember, we defined that earlier. He gave us mercy and grace when we were powerless to help ourselves. But our helping the poor is not justice in any way. Let me say that again. Our helping the poor is not justice in any way. Our helping the poor is charity. It's mercy and grace. No one is entitled to anything that they have not worked for any more than I am entitled to God's salvation. God did not owe me salvation. He did not owe anyone salvation, but he gave it out of his great love for us. That is why it is mercy and grace. Our helping the less fortunate is an act of love, and it's supposed to be a picture of how Christ helped us. Now, I'm going to read you this quote from uh, Jacob Brunton from the ChristianIntellectual.com. It's a website I encourage you to check out. Uh, Here's the quote. It says, The whole reason that Christians are supposed to give to the poor is to paint a picture of grace, i.e., undeserved gift of God in the gospel. By calling charity justice and claiming that it is deserved, the implication is that God's grace in the gospel is deserved. Ouch. And it goes further. Look at the implications of this bad thinking. His uh, quote continues, So-called social justice implies that it would be unjust for God not to bring sinners into heaven, and, and that there was no need for the death of his son, unless, of course, if it was to pay for God's sins against us. Consider what this would mean for the work of Christ on the cross. Christ was not performing an unspeakable act of grace, leaving us speechless, humiliated, and worshipful. No, he was paying the debt that he owed to us for his divine privilege. It's from Jacob Brunton at ChristianIntellectual.com. Now, do you see the blasphemy that arises from the subtle perversion of the term of justice? Now, if you ask a Christian who promotes this idea, like say like a Tim Keller, they don't mean this blasphemy when they say social justice, at least I hope they don't, but their concept of justice demands that it be true. And this social justice theology, as it's called, is leading to a whole host of other terrible ideas, like things called intersectionality and critical race theory. These are all based in the anti-biblical, anti-Christian idea of Marxism. And we won't go into it in depth, but I'll give you a, a little um, little taste here, a little d- definition. Now, intersectionality applies this concept of social justice to every interaction. Uh, it says every interaction is a power dynamic, and it assigns pa- uh, power dynamics to every relationship and assigns a hierarchy of validity 
based on one's immutable characteristics. For example, if you are a white heterosexual male, they assume that you have more power and that you should be give that you should give some of this power to someone less quote unquote privileged than you, like a black lesbian woman, for instance. It's a racist, sexist, anti-biblical philosophy. And there's critical race theory. This states that the racial dynamics between those of different skin colors will always, always be there, even if you are married. This is this may be the most destructive idea of all. It would destroy unity in the body of Christ, and we're already seeing this happen. And Satan meant for this. C.S. Lewis is not inspired scripture of close, but some of his stuff comes pretty close. I think he had great insights into this in his 1941 masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters. In this book, a senior tempter named Screwtape is giving advice, I mean, a a senior demon is giving advice to a junior tempter named Wormwood. His name is Screwtape and the junior tempter is named Wormwood. Now listen to the advice he gives. In cha- at the end of chapter 23, he goes, Certainly we, demons, do not want men to allow their Christian- Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity, Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but, failing that, as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy, which he means by that God, demands, and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy, God will not be used as a convenience. So this whole idea of thinking that Christianity pushes social justice is a ploy of Satan. So... What can we do about this? Because there are a lot of Christians out there who give it with their mouth. They say they decry critical race theory and intersectionality as unbiblical, but then they go around and their actions show that they have that they have accepted some of the assumptions of critical race theory and intersectionality, including the fact that they use the term social justice. So what can we do? Number one, pray. James 5.16 says the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and if you are in Christ, then you are righteous. Number two, point out to, to your Christian friends how social justice is anti-biblical. For example, in addition to all the scriptures I mentioned above, you can point to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. If social justice theology is correct, then those with more talents would have evenly distributed the money that God had given them amongst themselves. But instead, the righteous man made a profit, and Jesus commended him for it, and then rewarded him for it. But he condemned the one for whom he had given the least to, because this one didn't do anything with it. So Jesus showed no preference for the poor, and he did not give to each of his servants evenly. He gave different amounts to each one. And if social justice is correct— and if justice is a rep, is a reflection of God's character, then what they're saying is Jesus was unjust to give different amounts to each person. So you can disprove social justice with that. Number two, look at 2 Thessalonians 3.10. It says, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. That tells you that certain actions require a reward, and not doing those means you don't get squat. And if that means that two people end up with different amounts, then that is just. Giving to someone for doing nothing and taking from someone 
who has worked hard is injustice. So that's another basic one. Another one is the Ten Commandments of themselves. These are the top ten things that God cares the most about. And he defends private property in there in the top ten. Not once, but twice. He says, do not steal your neighbor's property and do not even want to steal your neighbor's property. These commands presuppose private property. So in God's top ten rules, two of them are defend private property. You know, John Locke would be proud. Next, point out how critical race theory and intersectionality are anti-biblical. Um, a lot of people are saying that we should, if, if we're a Christian and our skin color is white, we need to apologize for something that our ancestors did, even if our ancestors did nothing, <laughs> just because of the color of our skin. But let's, uh, let's even assume that our ancestors did do something. Should we be punished for that? According to Ezekiel 18, 1-20, and Jeremiah 31, 29-30, absolutely not. We are not responsible for their sins. We are responsible for our own sins and no one else's. The only person who's able to take someone else's sins on himself is Jesus. He is able to do this because he is God, and he willingly did this for us, not because we deserved it, but because of his amazing love and great grace shown towards us. So don't Try to take that burden on yourself that only Jesus can bear, and don't let other people put it on you. Remember, we are all equal at the foot of the cross, Galatians 3.28. We are all sinners before Christ and in desperate need of his charity, not justice. Let me say that. We are in desperate need of Christ's charity and not desperate need of his justice. If Christ gave us justice, he would kill us all and send us to hell. But instead, as an act of sheer mercy and grace, we are all forgiven in Christ if we trust in him. Hallelujah. Thank God that he gave us mercy and grace and not justice. I'd just like to remind you that if a person holds on to, the, to bitterness, entitlement, and unforgiveness, then they will be lost. Look at Luke 18, 9-14, and uh, Matthew 6, 9-15, um, and Matthew 18, 21-32. At the root of this uh, critical race theory, there's a lot of bitterness that Satan is trying to insert into the body of Christ, and we need to not let Satan win. Uh, lastly, saying that someone has white privilege or is a part of the patriarchy, patriarchy and owes you something, just or owes anyone something, just because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or because of any other immutable characteristic, is racist and sexist and is a slap in the face to the image of God. It is anti-Christian, and it is a form of hatred towards your fellow man. Just read 1 John 2, 11 and 4. 20. These are the stones to uh, put into your sling to hurl at these, this giant of intersectionality and critical race theory and social justice. And realize, realize we're attacking these ideas. We're not attacking people, but realize that many people in your church, maybe even longtime friends, may accuse you of not caring. They, uh, many of them have truly been deceived. They are not the enemy, but their ideas must be firmly squelched. You, you may lose some friendships over this, hopefully tempor- temporarily, but the integrity of the gospel is more important. I've lost friends over this, you know, and it's not fun, but I got to be faithful to Christ, and so do you. Realize also that you're going to receive di- different responses based on the color of your skin. If you're white, they're going to say something like, you just need to check your privilege. Or if you're black, they'll say something like, you have a black body, but not a black voice. These, res- these are real responses that I have heard and friends of mine have heard. And those who say them don't even realize how bigoted they are being. 
So lastly, I would say just be ready for pushback, you know, firmly, gently rebuke them, correct their ideas, but realize that changing hearts and minds is up to God. The, I would encourage you to keep learning. Like I said, Vody Bakken's book is excellent. I'm going to include in the show notes a bunch of other resources. And I just want to remind you that when truth comes, it always brings a division. It's, an, it's a necessary division. We don't seek unity simply for the sake of unity. Remember when Jesus came, he said, I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. And when Jesus brings truth, it will always bring a division between those who love the truth and those who can't stand the truth, those who hate the truth. The first division happened with those who accepted Christ and with the rest of the Jewish community. There was a division, and God separated those who trusted Christ from those who did not, and then he destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 as punishment for Christ being crucified. And it's it's interesting, if you look at church history, every 500 years there's been a major division in the church. And around uh, AD 550, there was the Monophysite division. Many people have today have no idea about that, but we go back and research the Monophysite controversy. Around uh, AD 1000 to 1100, there was the Great Schism, East-West Schism. A few, of you, few more people probably know about that. And then, of course, about 500 years ago, we had the Protestant Reformation, the major division between Protestants and Catholics. So... Even before I was learning about intersectionality and um, critical race theory, I realized we were due for a major division, and I, I didn't know what it was. I, I was I was actually thinking, God, I wonder what is the division going to be over. And then I started seeing reading about this last year, and of course we saw, you know, all the terrible riots the from BLM, the Black Lives Matter riots, and and the false narrative demonizing police. But then I, I didn't tie it to theology, and I didn't realize how bad it was in the church until I started researching it last year, and I realized I think this is what the division is going to be over. So I think this division, I agree with Vody Bakum, I think this division is inevitable. We can't stop it. All we need to do is make sure, what we need to do is make sure we are on the right side of this division. You know, I hate, hate using the term the right side of history, but Make sure that you are on the side of biblical justice and not social justice, and uh, God will bless you for it. All right, y'all, I hope you've enjoyed this two-part series. Uh, join me next time. I'm not sure the subject we'll tackle next time, but it will be just as just as meaningful, and I uh, hope you have a blessed, a blessed day. God bless. Bye. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share this with all your friends. If you want to contact me, you can email me at slayinggiantsshow at protonmail.com. You can also support us at Patreon. You can also go to the website at slayinggiantsshow.com. You can also contact us and connect with us at Facebook. Also, if you have a wonderful product or service you'd like to share with the world, we would love to have you advertise with us. So just contact us by emailing us at slayinggiantsshow at protonmail.com. Until next time, stay strong, stay joyful, and may God bless. Slaying Giants is a production of Joe Sneed Creative.